Facebook, Twitter, 24-7 News, talk radio, citizen journalism, fake news, real news. Audiences are drowning in an overwhelming overload of information. Clearly, a guidepost is needed to identify what is trustworthy and a reliable source of both news and information. Season 2 of the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A Matter of Facts, delves into this topic. This year, examining more closely popular sources of news and information. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. Our second season of this podcast delves more deeply into a variety of popular sources of news and information. And in this episode, we turn to a source of news that has struggled with its identity over the past decade or two, traditional newspapers. They've struggled to make the transition to the digital age. Their difficulty finding a viable business model has caused them to bleed money and staff, dealing a blow to local journalism especially. And at the same time, they faced competition from new online newspapers that are built specifically to operate in this new digital realm. What does all this mean to what news and information is available to people and how they consume it? To help answer that, we are joined on the podcast by Dr. Pablo Boskowski. He is a professor in Northwestern University's Department of Communication, founder and director of the Center for Latinx Digital Media, and co-founder and co-director of the Center for Media and Society in Argentina. His work focuses on the dynamics of digital culture. Dr. Boskowski, thanks for being with us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with kind of the, the overall issue here, and that is that the traditional print media has, has faced some difficulties in, in adapting to the digital age and specifically finding a business model. Um, from your perspective, have things at all improved for those entities in recent years? Are they any closer to finding their, their legs online? Traditional print newspapers have really struggled uh, in recent years. Um, there have been a number of closures across the nation, and um, in particular, local newspapers. Now, having said that, uh, some of them, some of the most uh, powerful and, and, and well-known ones, ones, such as you know the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, have, however, done quite well in their transition to digital, in particular, their ability to you know, generate a significant uh, revenue from an ever-expanding subscriber base, and as a result of that, you know, use those revenues to fund uh, newsroom expansion and great coverage. So what you have is a situation that you know has, on the one hand, the smaller locally based outlets struggling, and then the handful of uh, very successful national. Um, and in some cases international um, outlets uh, doing well. So that is not surprising in the sense that digital media markets tend to be winner-take-all markets, that is markets where one or a handful of players really dominate. You know, we buy stuff on Amazon, we search stuff on Google, we communicate on social media the number of properties owned by Facebook, you know, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, etc., etc. So it's not surprising 
that we go get news on a handful of uh, outlets. Um, that's unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you see it, uh, the evolution of traditional news media digitally in recent years. Is there anything, you mentioned that divide between kind of the larger publications, the bigger houses, and, and local newspapers and local journalism. Is there anything that can be done to, to help those local outlets? Is there a way they can respond to maybe, maybe not have the same type of success as a New York Times or a Washington Post that have greater resources, but at least get themselves a little bit better situated in this new realm? So there are uh, a number of initiatives in play, and there are wonderful colleagues uh, of mine in different universities across the country who have been studying this phenomenon. I, however, and this is my own perspective, um, I have not done my own empirical research on this topic in recent years, but my sense is that because of the nature of digital media markets and, you know, what my, you know, former colleague now retired by wonderful scholar James Wester called the marketplace of attention. Uh, given, uh, you know, the evolution of the digital marketplace of attention, I think we are going to see more and more concentration of attention and a, a media industry where there will be a handful of uh, extremely powerful and well-resourced uh, outlets, and fewer and fewer of the smaller ones. The other piece of this puzzle is is the outlets that are kind of online first or online only. Have we gotten a sense yet of how they're faring? Theoretically, they'd be better suited to thrive in this environment because they were built for this environment, but some of those have also struggled. Uh, how viable are they? And, and can these outlets and traditional outlets and their digital offerings coexist? So they can certainly coexist. Now, um, it is true that because they do not have legacy assets, you know, delivery trucks or printing presses or you name it, um, they, they have a different sort of uh, fixed costs, right? But um, it's less an issue of that and more an issue of brand recognition. Information products are experiential products. That is, if we go to a store to buy a pair of jeans, we try a number of pairs of jeans and we decide uh, on the ones that we like the best. We buy them and we use them over time. Information products, once you try them, you use them. That is, once you read a story, it's over, right? So because of that, attention tends to gravitate towards well-known brands. Right. So um, the, the, the role of brands, which is very important across all commodified goods, is particularly important when it comes to information goods. And as a result of that, legacy news organizations actually um, might have, depending on the circumstances, a bit of an advantage because the brands are highly recognizable. So which is the reason why, if you think about, you know, the top, uh, 50 or so, um, you know, online uh, or digital uh, websites or digital news operations, um, you see a lot of the, you know, so-called legacy or traditional players, you know, having significant presence in that space. There have been a few, um, you know, successful ones, uh, not just in the U.S., but also around the world in different languages. But we still see uh, that people tend to gravitate towards better-known brands that are typically associated with um, traditional uh, legacy brands. So this kind of brings us into talking a little bit about audience news consumption in this digital environment. And, and you look at part of this, or this as part of your upcoming book, 
abundance, uh, on the experience of living in a world of information plenty. What do we know about audience consumption of news via traditional newspaper publications online, these newer online outlets, and, and compared to, to other media, radio, television, things like that? Right. So, yes, in, in that book that Oxford University Press will be publishing in a few months, um, what I found is that more and more our consumption of news, not only digitally, but also in traditional um, uh, media, tends to be of an ambient form. That is, instead of sitting down and opening the newspaper and having an entire sort of uh, experience, you know, focus on reading the newspapers or sitting and, and turning on the TV and watching that, we tend to consume news in an ambient fashion. We listen to a podcast when we do something else. We put on uh, the, you know, the television newscast and, and we do you know, uh, laundry or cooking. And more importantly, we are out and about. We check social media you know, when we have you know, seconds of uh, downtime. And that way, a story is posted, you know, we found the story that is posted by uh, a friend or an acquaintance on a given platform, and that's how we learn about current affairs. Um, so it is less about having our primary focus of attention being the news, than the news being something that we learn about in an incidental fashion while we're doing something else as a byproduct of uh, that uh, other activity. And that's why more and more our consumption of news happens on social media. We do not go to a social media platform to learn about current affairs. That Twitter being the exception, but you know, Twitter is a fairly niche platform when we think about the array of platforms that people have at their disposal. We go on social media to socialize to tell our stories and to find out what our acquaintances and friends and family members have been up to. And then when we're there, we stumble upon the news. And on occasion, we might click on a story. But for the most part, we just get the information that is posted on somebody else's news feed. I find it interesting because one of the ways you describe social media and kind of its impact is, is it's, a, it's a labyrinth. Uh, and, and I'm curious, you know, listening to what you just had to say, what the implications of this way of kind of engaging with news and information has on people and, and maybe more specifically their ability to distinguish between credible news, which you would expect to get if you went directly to uh, you know, a newspaper or an online news source or listen to the radio and, and what you're getting off a social media platform. Correct. So um, what happens when we get news on social media is first and foremost that our um, you know, diet, so to speak, is filtered not only uh, through the media, which primarily produces the story, but secondarily through the contact on social media, say like Facebook, um, who posts that story. Right. Unless we get that story directly from um, the social media account of a traditional media organization, if we either like that page before, etc. But most people really um, get their news on social media through their contacts. So what you have there is a two level of filtering. You have the filtering by the media organization, which decides of all possible events in the world, which ones are going to be newsworthy. And then there is a framing of that. 
right? I mean, we're going to tell the story in this way, but not in that other way. That's one first layer of filtering. Then you have to add to that the second layer of filtering that uh, is the filter of the person who selects of all the possible stories, you know, your contact, you know, I'm going to, you know, post on that story. And sometimes they add their own perspective. So, you know, the first thing to notice is that there is these two levels of filter. Second is that, um, you know, when we, you know, watch television or when we read the news, what we have is news content, you know, a particular story within the context of other stories. On social media, we have a news story in the context of posts about, you know, trips, about uh, pets, about anything uh, in the world. So, um, so the news is sort of decontextualized. A given story is decontextualized from the flow of news in general. And the attention is fairly fleeting. You know, most people, you know, scroll through their feed. And um, it is very common, for instance, that people, you know, uh, are on social media during public transit. And whenever they get to their destination, they, you know, start walking. So it's not that they finish their consumption of news when the news story ends. They finish their consumption of social media, including bits of news that is part of that, when they have to do something else. So in that sense, the consumption of news has become secondary or derivative in our uh, daily experience. And I imagine that would be... And I would imagine it would be difficult for these news organizations that are producing this news because, you know, they're, they're producing something that they expect people to kind of take in total. And, and it sounds like what you're saying is maybe sometimes they're only kind of getting bits and pieces of it. Correct. Absolutely. It's very difficult. And it's also very difficult because they are not getting the revenue either. Right. In the U.S., you know, two companies um, – Alphabet, which is uh, Google's parent company, and Facebook get more than, you know, two-thirds of digital display advertising dollars, right? So they get the content essentially for free, if you think about it. So news companies are producing the company, the content, sorry, uh, but the social media platforms are getting the revenue. So it doesn't seem like a very fair proposition, but it is the way in which it has evolved. I do want to ask you about something else that, that uh, I found in, in, your, in looking over your book, Abundance, and that is uh, one of the things you found was that um, with news consumption, the, the impact of uh, the socioeconomic impact seemed to be greater than uh, other, other types of, of information consumption where age tended to be more of a factor. I'm curious because a lot of times in, in the news business, you hear people talking about age a lot. Like you need to meet this younger audience where they're at in the digital realm. You need to produce things like podcasts and use data visualization uh, to, to reach this younger audience. Uh, is, that, is, that, is age likely to become more of a factor or, or do you think it, it will remain this way where, where in terms of news, socioeconomic factors are going are to trump age factors? an excellent question. So what we know now is that if you think about three major sources of media, broadcast media, television, radio, then print media, newspapers and magazines, and then digital media in two forms, news websites and social media, what we see is that by far still the top source of news is broadcast news, in particular television. Okay. Now, the second uh, uh, most important source of news, digital news. So print is going, you know, 
you know, uh, out essentially. So the, the people are still consuming to a certain degree, but it's not a top contender anymore. Now, the main driver when it comes to broadcast news, you know, the main factor has to do with socioeconomic status. And that has been fairly stable for quite some time. Um, the thing is that, so if you think about overall, and if that is the main source of news, therefore that means that socioeconomic status trumps age as sort of the main structural determinant of uh, where people get their information about current events. However, the audience for broadcast news is not growing, but the audience for digital news is. So as we project to the extent that we can, right, um, since you were alluding to that, um, one might think that over time, age will become uh, you know, an even more important factor than what it is today. I might at some point uh, trump socioeconomic status when it comes to determining whether, where people get their news. Um, but, you know, futurology is not the, the strong suit of the social sciences, so <laughs> I will not make any major prediction. Understood. I do want to also ask you about something else that, uh, that comes up frequently now when people are accessing news content through these various news sites, and, and that is this idea of sponsored content. A lot of entities have turned to this to help bolster their business model, blurring the line between this paid content and actual news that's, that's produced by journalists. And I'm curious what, what you feel are some of the implications of, of that for people who are, are trying to find reliable news. Well, on the audience side, it complicates the issue of trust. Right. So we, we, I mean, have to understand that we are living at a time in which trust in institutions is declining and trust in the news institution has declined quite considerably globally. So the, the largest uh, study um, of digital news consumption done by uh, my friends and colleagues at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at the University of Oxford, uh, the Digital News Report, documented that last year, uh, there was a significant drop globally uh, of trust in the news that one consumes. Even in the country they measured, I believe it was 41 countries uh, last year, um, even in the country where trust was the highest, uh, which I believe was Japan, even in that uh, case, uh, level of trust went down. So in a, in a climate in which the public is already sort of quite distrustful of the news, then organizations presenting um, content that even though they are labeling as, okay, this is different, this is sponsored content, but that by itself, by its very present, sort of is suggesting that the organization is engaging in sort of quote-unquote objective news, report, news reporting and quote-unquote some form of public relations, um, I think it can sort of over time undermine the overall trust in that particular brand. So what you have there, in my opinion, is a tension between the need for short-term revenue versus the potentially negative consequences for the brand down the line. And going back to what I was discussing before, if, if brands are an incredibly important asset in digital media markets, then that is, to me, quite a risky proposition. One of the other things I wanted to ask you a little about is the fact that the news outlets also really have to compete with other content and entertainment that people consume when you're talking about the digital realm, that they oftentimes you know, stand side by side 
these other pieces of content with news on people's devices. And I'm curious, does, does that you feel play also play a role in in what these news entities need to do? Um, is there a concern that clickbait holds a higher value because it it feels more entertainment like than complex and nuanced journalism that that people can find maybe too heavy or too depressing? Right. No, that, that's, I think, an absolutely critical point. I just to illustrate this with a very simple number. In the U.S., the duration, the average duration of a session on a news website, not the people who get a story through a social media feed, but somebody who goes on a web, website, the average duration of a session, not the click on one story, but the entire time of that visit um, of a top 50 digital news website has been fairly steady over the years, and I believe the last measurement I saw was 144 seconds. That is two minutes and 24 seconds. That's on the one side. On the other side, um, Netflix uh, tends to be fairly secretive about their numbers, but there was a, an article a few years ago in the New York Times so I'm assuming it, it's well-sourced and credible uh, because it's a wonderful news organization. So in that article, I remember, um, there were some figures about uh, the consumption of Netflix shows. And the average time um, that was devoted the week of a release of a new season of a top thriller on Netflix, the average, no, the median viewer was devoted 150 minutes a day of watching that. So you go for, so essentially the season lasted four days for that person at that pace. For comedies, that's for thrillers, I believe, for comedies is five days. Um, so, <laughs> but if you juxtapose, put side by side, 144 seconds for news versus 150 minutes for, a, you know, for serialized fiction, then you have a problem uh, for the news, right? So, so to me, the issue is not so much the issue of clickbait, to me, the issue is that evidently binge watching is a huge driver of consumer behavior uh, of entertainment. And it seems quite difficult for news organizations to generate that. There is a portion of uh, you know, the audience that uh, spends a lot of time on the news. However, it's much smaller proportionally than the portion of the audience who spends significant amount of time on entertainment. Um, so to me, that's the key. How can news organizations generate that level of attachment to news content that is manifested, that is expressed in the common practice of binge-watching? It's a fascinating topic. We like to end our podcast, uh, Dr. Boskowski, by asking each of our guests uh, the same question, which is, where do you get your news on a daily basis? What are your favorite or go-to news sources? So my favorite uh, source in English-speaking language is The Guardian. Um, my favorite source in Spanish, as you can tell from my accent, English is not my native language. I was born and raised in Argentina, where we speak Spanish predominantly. So my uh, top uh, source in Spanish is a wonderful news website called Infobae, which is now the leading uh, news website in the world in the Spanish-speaking language. And it's an online-only site, which is quite remarkable as an achievement to, uh, to get to that stage. Dr. Pablo Boskowski, professor in Northwestern University's Department of Communication, founder and director of the Center for Latinx Digital Media. 
and co-founder and co-director of the Center for Media and Society in Argentina. Thank you for joining us on the A Matter of Facts podcast. Thank you very much, Tom, for having me, and thank you for the listen to the listeners for, for staying with us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A Matter of Facts podcast. The A Matter of Facts podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state program of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to engage, educate, and inspire all Delawareans through cultural programming. We thank the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for its generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for its partnership. A Matter of Facts is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.